We are in the midst of the Yom Nuraim, which is translated as Days of Awe, the period between Yom Teruah, or Rosh Hashanah, and Yom Kippur. One of the things about the rabbis is they don't understand completely what Yom Teruah is. I was watching Rabbi Foreman last night, and that guy could really be messianic. He's just about that far away. He's not there. I mean, he's firmly rabbinic. But he had some really good insights about this period. In the Torah, Yom Teruah is also called Yom Zikron Teruah, which is the day of the remembering of the shofar. So he says, remembering? Why remembering? Now let, let me pop up a level and talk messianic for a minute. My view of the end times, and as many preachers as there are have different views, and, and I understand this is not doctrine, this is just my opinion. My opinion is that the fall feasts are going to begin on Yom Teruah because that is going to be the announcement of the coming of the king. So the blast of the shofar announces that the king is coming. Then we have ten days of repentance followed by what I call a come to Jesus meeting. And that's when Yeshua is going to judge. So this period of time for us, at least as I see it, is a time of anticipation of the coming of the king. Rabbi Foreman almost gets there. And what he says is, if we're looking at that as the day of the remembrance of the blowing of the shofar, what are we celebrating? And he says, well, at Sinai, what we heard was the sound of the shofar. And so you have the remembrance of the sound of the shofar. And then he goes back to the garden. You remember when we were minding our own business, munching on forbidden fruit? The thing that brought Adam and Eve to fear was the sound of the voice of God in the garden. The thing that causes them to flee and to hide is the sound of the voice of God. What's the reaction of the Israelites when they also hear the sound of the voice of God standing at Sinai? Terror. So it's the sound of the voice of God that brings us to an understanding that we are unworthy to stand in his presence. Up until we hear that sound, as I say, we just go along fat, dumb, and happy munching on forbidden fruit. And when we hear the voice of God, we recognize that we are sinners and we are not worthy of standing in his presence. So these days of awe, and by the way in Hebrew, awe and fear are the same word. So it could be translated as days of fear or days of awe. Now we call it days of awe, which is appropriate, but, but understand that the word is the same. So what we hear on Yom Teruah is the sound of the voice of God, 
which brings us to either awe or fear. And we have this 10-day period between the voice of God sounding and, and what? Now let's go to the Torah. What happens on Yom Kippur? It's the one time of the year when the high priest gets to go into the Holy of Holies. So what happens in the Holy of Holies? In order to be in the presence of God, you have to be without sin. So the high priest goes into the presence of God on Yom Kippur, and as a result of that, as a result of drawing near to God, sins are forgiven. Now, we, being human, look at the big deal as being sins forgiven, right? Because we become aware of our sins when we hear the voice of God, the voice of the shofar. We're very much aware of our sins. And for us, the big deal about going into the Holy of Holies is that our sins are forgiven. And I will suggest that isn't the big deal at all. The big deal is being in the presence of God. And a byproduct of that is your sins are forgiven. Now, as I say, we out here in the world who are munching on the forbidden fruit and walking along minding our own business, we think of it as, ah, oh, there's an opportunity to get my sins forgiven, which is a big deal. But that's not the purpose of the exercise. The purpose of the exercise is to come into God's presence. Now, what happens in God's presence? I will suggest that one of the things that happens in God's presence is all of the confusion that we experience in the world goes away. Because confusion cannot exist in the presence of God. And as we go through our daily lives, all of us, me very much included, we all get led astray, confused, tricked by our own minds and by the world, and that leads us to do things that we will later regret. All of us do that. And what happens when you come into the presence of God is all that confusion falls away. And you're able to see the world, your life. I used to be in the Army, most of you know that. And one of the things we do in the Army is spend a whole lot of time stumbling around in the dark. I can't tell you how many days I have spent wandering around in the woods in the middle of the night. And you get kind of good at figuring out where you are. If you don't, you don't survive. Typically what happens is whoever's leading the group pays real close attention to his compass and his map and he sort of knows where you are. The guys in the back of the group are just sort of stumbling along and they got really no idea where they are. I've been in both positions and keeping track of where you are in the dark is hard work. So if you don't have to do it and you can rely on the guy in front, you just sort of don't. And you just sort of walk along zoned out uh, trying to avoid getting hit by branches or falling into ditches or other stuff. But I can remember in Dahlonega, Georgia, ranger school, stumbling along in the dark, and we had a thunderstorm. And there was a flash of lightning. And all of a sudden I could see all around me for just a brief instant. And I could look around and I could orient myself. And I could see, oh, okay, that's where we are. And then the dark closed in again. That's what Yom Kippur is. 
As you come into the presence of God, it's like a flash of lightning. You can see everything, and you can recognize clearly what things that you need to work on, what things that you're doing okay on, where you are, where the world is, all those kinds of things. You get this blinding flash, not blinding flash, you get this clarifying flash. Because in the presence of God, confusion falls away. God is not confused. I would gently suggest to you that an attribute of God is not confusion. So, in his presence, your confusion falls away. Now, we've been talking in Musar, and I will simplify it, that you're a being in several parts. You've got your neshama, which is the part of you that connects to God. That's your spiritual connection. Then you've got your nephesh, which is what Christians would call your soul. Then you've got your ruach, which is the part of you that keeps the meat warm. That's what keeps me standing up and talking and all that. That's the low-level stuff. And then you've got the clay. So when you guys come to a saving knowledge of God, the thing about you that changes is your neshama. That's your connection to God. That connection gets established. Well, it takes a while to get your nephesh sorted out so that your behavior follows what your neshama or your spirit would have you do. That takes a lifetime. And the place that you need to go to get that jump started is the Holy of Holies. You have to come into the presence of God because the presence of God is the only thing that slaps your forbidden fruit eating nephesh back into sense. Because I don't know about you, but I'm really good at forbidden fruit. I mean, I like forbidden fruit. Got really good reasons why I should keep munching on it. We all do. And this flash that you get in the presence of God makes you recognize that, no, that stuff in your mouth is not really tasty. That's forbidden fruit, and it's an abomination to God, and you can get rid of it. Now, let's talk about repentance. And I've said this lots of times before, but it's worth saying again. The fact that you are not completely aligned up with the image of God is a feature, not a bug. In other words, God created you imperfect. He could have created you perfect. I am firmly convinced that he could have done that. He didn't do that on purpose, his purpose. And the purpose is that you now have a curriculum to work through for the rest of your life, and part of that is going to involve you doing it wrong. The example that all of you who are parents know is the two-year-old. Two-year-olds are not born perfect. And you can watch your two-year-old, and you can look at your two-year-old, and you can see the cat, and you can see the syrup, and you know that the syrup is going to go on the cat if you don't stop. You, you just know. Well, that's not a defect. That kid just needs to be taught and raised and learned. And you're the same way. And in order for that to work, there has to be a mechanism for you to recover from the things that you do as a two-year-old. I mean, if the only remedy for two-year-olds is when the syrup hits the cat off with his head, you don't have many three-year-olds. And it's the same with us. If the only remedy when you mess up is off with his head, then nobody ever gets into the kingdom of God. 
So God built the ability to have repentance and forgiveness into his universe. Like I say, it's a feature, it's not a bug. And what this time of year does is focuses us on all of the forbidden fruit we've eaten over the years and it gives us a formal opportunity to hear the voice of God and either respond in awe or in terror and spend a period of time getting things sorted out so that when God finally comes we are fit to stand in his presence. Now, repentance, teshuva. There's a process and the rabbis have got it nailed. They're very good at it. Maimonides has got a whole book, The Process of Repentance. So it's, it's not a simple thing, but there's three steps. The first thing that you've got to do is you've got to acknowledge your sin. You've got to recognize it. You've got to say, ah, that's forbidden fruit and I ate it and I confess that I did eat it. You can't say, well, but the woman, she baked it into a pie and she gave it to me to eat and it's not my fault. That's what Adam tried to do. That was his first reaction. It was the woman you gave me. You gave me this woman, God, and she made the apple pie and she gave it to me. I I can't blame me. It wasn't my fault. So the first place you got to start is acknowledging that you have sinned. Whether you did it intentionally, unintentionally, whatever, you got to acknowledge that you did it. That's sort of the first step. The second step, you got to say, I'm sorry. I regret that I did that. I have sinned against you. I have injured you. I have injured you or I have injured God or I have injured somebody by my sin. And you've got to say, I am sorry. I regret having done that. Not, I regret having gotten caught. Every criminal in jail regrets having been caught. But you have to regret the damage that you did. Whatever that was. And it may be something small or it may be something big. But you've got to regret that. And the third thing you've got to do is you've got to resolve firmly not to do it again. Years and years ago, I used this example and I kind of like it. Most of us want to take our sacrificial goat and just sort of nick it a little bit so we got some blood for the altar, but we want to save the goat because we're planning to do some other sinning later. I'm going to need this goat again next week, God. Let's just cut him up a little bit and shed some blood on the altar and I'll take it home and I'll bring it back next week and we'll do it again. No. you got to kill the goat. The goat has to die. Which means that you've got to resolve not to do it again. When I was a commander in the army, one of the highest compliments I could pay one of my subordinates is he never makes the same mistake twice. Twenty-some-odd-year-old lieutenants, I expected them to screw up. But what I really wanted to see is when they screwed up and I jacked them up, that they didn't do it again. That's repentance. You get to the point where I admit that I did this, I'm sorry, and I'm not going to do it again. Because if you keep doing the same thing over and over again, what you do, you got this leaky goat tethered in the back of your house, and you're just going to bring a little blood over there. That doesn't cut it. So, what's keeping us 
from doing that. This is a time of the year when you should examine your life and one of the things you should do is pop your head up and see have I offended someone? Have I sinned against someone? Now, use some discernment here because we got the social justice warrior crowd. You got people that have made a whole profession out of being offended. You can ignore that. But if you genuinely offended someone, you genuinely wronged someone, go to that person. Ask for forgiveness. And as best you can, repair the damage that you've done. And when you ask for forgiveness, make sure you get forgiveness or you get told to take a hike, one or the other. I mean, you may get told to take a hike. What you did to me, I'm never going to forgive you. That can happen. But at that point, it's no longer your problem because you have gone and you have confessed your sin and you have asked for forgiveness and you have offered to make it right as best you can. At the point when you've done that, if the victim over here says, absolutely not, I will never talk to you again, fine, I'm sorry you feel that way, but I have done what I can. And don't accept, oh, well, it's okay, it didn't mean anything, no, no big deal. That's not forgiveness. What you want is, I forgive you. I acknowledge that you wronged me. You're acknowledging that you wronged me. You have come and asked for forgiveness. I give you forgiveness. Then it's clean. Oh, it doesn't matter. That's not forgiveness. There's still something there. So if you go for forgiveness, make sure you get it. And of course, we have assurance from Scripture that if we go to God for forgiveness, we will get it. That's the whole point of the gospel. That's the whole point of the sacrifice of Yeshua. When you go to him for forgiveness, you will get that forgiveness. And you can be sure of that. So when you've gotten that forgiveness, you can then go into the Holy of Holies clean. And the byproduct of the presence of God is all of your sins are washed away. But understand it's the presence of God that you want. I'll close with a story. There's a true story of an Israeli boy sitting in the hospital waiting while his mother was having a minor operation. Since he was religious, he was reciting Psalms, the holy words of King David, which comfort and inspire us during difficult times. In the same room was a kibbutznik, an older man. The kibbutznik saw the boy praying Psalms and came over to him. Why are you doing this? This religious stuff is old-fashioned. It can't possibly do any good. The boy asked him, Why are you here in the hospital? The kibbutznik answered, I came to pick up the body of my son. He's having an operation, but the doctors say there's no chance. A few moments later, the doctor came out and announced to the kibbutznik, It's a miracle. The operation was successful. Your son will live. The kibbutznik stood on his feet and started Shema Israel. Now, the question is, what kind of a person in a hospital would upbraid a young boy praying for his mother? And the answer to that is someone who wants to be praying himself but has lost his connection to God and is desperately seeking it. You will find such people as you go through life. Larry tells stories all the time when he's in Costco selling chili that people will come up to him and he can see that they're hurting and he offers to pray for them and it's like you would do that for me? 
there are people out there who desperately want the presence of God. You have the presence of God. Take it to them. As you go through your week, look at people. Look for opportunities to share the presence of God with them. Because again, the purpose of Yom Kippur is not to get forgiven from your sins. The purpose of Yom Kippur is to come into the presence of God. And all of us have within us that desire. Some of us, like our kibbutznik, have suppressed it all their lives. They've tamped it down because whatever, whatever reason, they've done that. But it's there. And at their deepest heart, that's what they want. Take it to them.